You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. 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 Good to be here. Who's on the show this hey week? Hey uh, Adam Higginbotham. Oh, yeah. Adam Higginbotham. Oh, that guy. Uh, bylines everywhere from details to GQ, Wired, New Yorker. But this week, he's got a new story in The Atomist. What's the story called? A Thousand Pounds of Dynamite. And I would say to those who might think that he's only on the show... Because of that story, first of all, he's written a lot of amazing stories. That's why we assigned him that piece in the first place. And second of all, I would defy anyone to read that story and then say that we shouldn't talk about it on the show. It's a yarn. I heard it's dynamite. Nice one. Magic. Nice one. <laughs> what about sponsors? Uh, well, we got a tiny letter from the good people at MailChimp. It's a simple but so profoundly powerful way to get a email newsletter off the ground. There's lots of great tiny letters out there. You're probably getting one in your inbox. Why not start one yourself? All right, here's Max with Adam Higginbotham. Hello, Adam Higginbotham. Good afternoon. How are you, sir? Very well. Thank you for uh, coming to the office on a Sunday afternoon. I feel bad. I feel like we, we've interrupted your weekend. Uh, you have, but I'm, I'm happy to have it interrupted. <laughs> uh, man, I have so, much, so many things that I want to talk to you about, uh, but I think think we should start with this story that you just wrote for the Atavist. Okay. Okay, so here's the thing. When when um, Longform hit two years, uh, we went back and we picked like our favorite articles ever, and I couldn't figure out how to pick which stories because there had been so many that I loved. And so I decided to just um, search my email for um, the phrase, holy shit, and just find stories that I had sent to people. And, and uh, all I could say was holy shit, like the, the holy shit stories. <laughs> This story you've written is a is a holy shit story, man. <laughs> this story's insane. It's completely bonkers. It, it is, and it that's is. that's what I thought when I first heard it. And then, the more I found out about it, the more I thought, well, this is kind of ridiculous. Uh, it's called a thousand pounds of dynamite. And maybe uh, before we get into it, you could just sort of recap it for people. Uh, it's a historical. It's a historical story. It um, it's about something that happened in 1980, when a Hungarian emigre who had bankrupted himself at the uh, tables of casinos in uh, Lake Tahoe, decided that he was going to get his money back by building an extremely complex bomb in his garage with the help of his two teenage sons. 
and deliver it into one of these casinos in the middle of the night, accompanied by an extortion note, asking for $3 million in return for instructions on how to defuse it. One, one important note, I'm just going to, uh, uh, we're going to keep going, but one important note is uh, you could not actually defuse the bomb. The bomb was undefusable. <laughs> so the instructions that he planned to provide them with were actually instructions on how to safely take it somewhere else so that it could blow up without hurting anybody. Probably. Okay. I mean, I, I don't know how much of the story we're going to spoil. I don't want to spoil. I don't want to spoil all of it. It doesn't end well. It doesn't end well. It doesn't end well. Um, he, we can say that he successfully gets the bomb into the casino. Can we say that? He does. He does. He, it, like all the best crime stories, he nearly gets away with it. <laughs> Which is kind of amazing because like everything else about the plan is, is not strong. The finishing, no. the finishing act is not, is not well conceived. No. But the bomb is inc- this incredible work of art. The bomb is, is, is kind of brilliant, yeah. And and the all the FBI guys and the bomb guys, who examined it at the time, still say that. There's a, like a long section in the in the story about the bomb, but maybe you could you could just give us like the the brief version, because it's it, it, it's amazing. It's again, it is it's a holy shit bomb. Um, how how would I describe this thing? Well, it was a box. It was a box that he filled with nearly a thousand pounds of dynamite, as much as they could get into it. That's not as catchy a title for a story. Nearly no. a thousand pounds of dynamite. Um. They stole a thousand pounds of dynamite, but they just the box wasn't quite big enough to fit it all in. And then rather than just being, you know, a bomb with a timer, it was a bomb with a timer that he turned on and then sealed inside. And then he booby trapped it in such a way that that if you tried to take the top off it or get into it to turn the timer off, then it would go off. The other thing that the FBI agents found remarkable about this device was that that although he was kind of technically gifted, he built it using things anyone could find lying around in their local hardware store. So, for instance, he devised a mechanism whereby you couldn't stop it working by filling with water or foam because he got... Uh, a float from a from a toilet cistern and put it in there so that if the if the ball on the cistern rose if you flooded the bomb then the bomb would go off he lined it with layers of tin foil and neoprene so that if you drilled into the box from the outside it would it would make an electrical contact with the foil and then it would set the bomb off he had a he had a, a sort of a trembler switch that he'd made out of a piece of plumbing pipe and a rubber band and a pendulum and then lined the pipe with foil so that if you move the box at all, then the, the pendulum would make contact with the foil and it would set the bomb off. I mean, he had, the, and there were eight different fusing mechanisms. The bomb is kind of brilliant. It, it is. It is. And the other thing Was. about the guy, the guy's name is John Burgess. John Burgess. And Janosch Burgess was his original name. And and what's amazing about Big John is what he's referred to throughout the story. Big John, what's amazing about him is that um, he had come here penniless and made millions like he'd made a fortune right enough, right. To, he became, enough to gamble it all away he became very very successful he actually he he became very successful as a, as a landscaper in california and um and made a lot of money by getting a lot of municipal contracts including that for landscaping the grounds of the federal court building in which he was ultimately tried that must have been a must have been a strange moment i wonder <laughs> if he like when he was walking in he was like, like looking at the hedges. 
Or maybe you'd only be able to look at it out the window. Unthinking, yeah, I should have done those differently. <laughs> I should have kept this going. Um, but the thing that's crazy, right, you think about like uh, people who would be driven to uh, like elaborate bomb extortion plots are not people who have readily made fortunes earlier in their lives. He's not an obvious loser, is what you're really saying. Uh, yeah, okay, that's a good way of putting it. Sure. Right. Yeah. Or, or, or like a, a, an obvious crazy person. Right. And and his problem really was was that he didn't see himself that way either and he didn't think other people should see him that way, which is why he became so outraged when he lost all his money because he thought he was cleverer than everyone else. Right. He he liked to think that he could beat the odds. Yeah. And then this was like the ultimate trying to beat the odds. Exactly. The other thing that's that's interesting about the story and the bomb in particular is that it it has this long section about how it works like you just described and uh, tinkering and tinkerers are like a real theme in your work. You seem to like come back again and again to criminals who do sort of elaborate mechanical tasks and also uh, who kind of want you to uh, know how brilliant they are, which is a big John trait. I think that is true, yeah. But we'll I get... hadn't realized that until he <laughs> mentioned it. <laughs> we'll get back to that. Here's the thing that I kept thinking about while I was reading the story. So they, they do get the bomb in to the casino. Right. Right. And there is a we can say a prolonged period when the bomb is in the casino and this impossible def- to defuse bomb is being looked at by massive amounts of law enforcement and like media right throughout the story there's these videos of the scene outside the casino right um, the thing I was thinking about while I was reading is like if this happened now it would break the internet it's it's part of the reason that that, that I found the story was fascinating is because you can think so many things about it that begin, if this happened now. Right. And it's like, I, well, as you're reading it, someone brought a gigantic bomb filled with nearly 1,000 pounds of dynamite into a major casino in Lake Tahoe. And, and I never the, heard of that the, A few days before Labor Day weekend. It's, I mean, it's so wild. And it's like, uh, it's kind of lost to history, or at least right. it was before you wrote right. this piece. I couldn't believe it as I was reading it that this wasn't something that, like, you know, I heard about when I was 10. Like, well, that's exactly what I thought when I first read about it. I was like, wait, this happened, and I've never heard of it. I know. It's, I mean, this thing happened, whatever, 35 years ago, and I feel like I can't say the end of it because I don't want right. to spoil the story. But it's like, how does everyone not know the end of this story? <laughs> well, but we yeah. can probably say no one was killed. No one, yeah, that's true. No one was killed. Because, obviously, I asked people involved in it, what, you know, why... This the, for many of them, the kind of peak of their careers in law enforcement is is lost to history, and they said, you know, it's because because everybody walked away. I mean, everybody walked away intact. I mean, <laughs> right. people involved didn't, didn't all get to walk away anywhere, and some other people didn't walk away whole. Right. Oh man, can we just say what happened? It, I don't want to blow it. I mean, you can. This is a story that's put out by the Atavist, and you should go buy this thing. I I really recommend that you buy the article. It is fantastic. But I just want to talk about what happens because I just read it last night and I want to talk to you about it. So they get this, they get the bomb in to the casino, uh, this massive bomb. They leave a note asking for $3 million. The bomb is impossible to defuse. And eventually, on live television, this bomb goes off in the casino. There's no one in it. No one in the casino. No one is hurt, right. like you said. But they, like blew a gigantic hole. They blew a six-story hole through the middle of one of the largest casinos in the United States. Holy shit. <laughs> Holy shit. Here's what I'm saying. If that is happening now, right? If, like, right now, you know, we've, we're both sitting here with, like, our phones on this table. If 
uh, all of a sudden I got a text message that was like, there's a casino or there's a giant bomb in a casino somewhere. <laughs> we would like stop what we were doing and we would start following this thing. Like it would be everywhere. It would have been the entire, I feel like the entire like focus of the internet would have been on that casino. Right. And somebody on Reddit way, would have come up with a way of diffusing it. Absolutely. <laughs> they would have figured it out, right? They would have figured it out. Totally. And it, I just couldn't stop thinking about that while I was reading the story. It was like, here's this thing that, that is kind of just lost to history. And it's totally one of these stories. It's like, it felt like the, you know, the Malaysian airliner, you know, it was one of these, it, if it was happening now, it would have been the lead story everywhere. It would have had right. the entire world's focus. And it's just, well, it was the lead story everywhere in, in the United States while it was happening. And then, you know, a year later, everybody had forgotten, well, two years later, everybody had forgotten about it. Yeah, I guess that's maybe how it would work too now. Maybe we would just forget about these things. But it's uh, pretty amazing. So Burgess isn't allowed to tell you about the story, but who did you, like, how did you, I guess, how did you find it and how did you start getting back into it? I found it because I was, uh, I was actually researching another story that I was interested in, another historical story. Um, and I was reading an 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 oral history project interview with an FBI agent who had been working in Las Vegas at the time, uh, talking about this other case I was interested in. And he mentioned in passing that a couple of years earlier, he'd, he'd been roped in to work on this case where this Hungarian emigre had blown up this casino in Lake Tahoe. Uh, and, I, and I had that, wait, what? <laughs> really? Are you sure about this reaction? And then... And then the more I read about it, the more I thought, well, well hang on, why, why has nobody told this story? Why do you think that is? Why do you think no one has done that story? Um, I think because it was because, partly because it was covered a lot of the time, partly because it's, you know, like a local newspaper reporter wrote a three-part series about it on the, the I don't know, the, maybe the 25th anniversary of it. It's been locally, it's still a big deal. I mean, if you go to Lake Tahoe and ask anybody about Harvey's Casino, then they'll, you know, the, the first thing they'll tell you about it is that they this crazy guy blew the place up in 1980. And when I was researching the story, I was constantly meeting people. Like when I went to the courthouse to look over the documents they have in the state courthouse, you know, one of the, the court clerks said to me, oh, yeah, my uncle worked security at Harvey's. You know, and so it's a thing yeah. in, in that area. But more broadly, you know, it has been forgotten about. Another critical part of the story is that uh, his co-conspirators kind of are his kids, are his two right. sons. Right, his two sons. Uh, and one, you were able to talk to... I talked to, I mean, with the exception of, of Big John and his wife, who died, you know, sometime before the conspiracy took place, I mean, pretty much everyone else involved in the crime and the investigation is still around, and I spoke to a lot of them. So I spoke to both... Uh, the sons. I spoke to all of the surviving, almost all of the surviving FBI agents and the U.S. attorney who prosecuted the, prosecuted the case in federal court. You, you know, there's a lot of people still around. And I guess were they, I mean, 25 years, 35 years later, were they, uh, were they ready to tell that story? Like, were they, were they, were they game? Very much so, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the lead... The lead investigator for the for the Nevada side of the investigation, you know, still lectures. I mean, he went on to become a a, a pretty well established bomb technician, and then worked on the Oklahoma City bombing and the the first World Trade Center bombing, um, and one of the other bomb techs worked on the the Lockerbie bombing. So I mean, they, they he I, he was lecturing about this case 
last month at, a, at an international uh, association of bomb technicians symposium. <laughs> so yeah, he was he was more than happy to talk about it. But you know, there were other other people in, involved in the investigation who nobody has spoken to about this since it happened, pretty much, and, and not at the time. And those guys were fascinating to talk to. I'm sure. I mean, it just blows my mind that no one, no one had gone and like really done this story. Uh, what, what were his kids like? Uh, his kids have. I mean, it's it's not. It the story is not really um, going to upset anyone's expectations of of uh, people turning out the way you think they will forty years later if you set them on a certain trajectory. <laughs> uh, so the, the one son, John. Is is a very nice guy, but his his life was completely derailed by by what happened, um, and he he never really recovered from it. The younger son Jim just kind of carried on almost unimpeded. Now is it never even left Fresno where they both lived, uh, and is now a successful businessman. On is just finished with his second marriage, has three kids, coaches little league, has a business. It's amazing. They and they, I mean, they were. Almost estranged before it started, and it's this thing kind of brought them back. They, they, it's. I mean, I never got them in a room together. Uh, they, <laughs> they don't really. They don't talk to one another. Um, I mean, there's a point in the story where, the, the, right at the beginning, where the conspiracy begins, where they, they, Jim goes round to John's house, and John's first words to him, being someone he hasn't spoken to in a couple of years, he, his first words to him are, are pretty much what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> and the last time I spoke to Jim Burgess, he said that he and his then wife had recently gone down to Ventura from Fresno to visit John. And uh, he said that that when John caught sight of them, the first thing he did was turn around and said, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> so it, it, it really hasn't changed. I feel like uh, a thing that has changed, or maybe the reason that the story kind of also didn't have this kind of lasting appeal or something was that they get they get caught they almost don't get caught right right uh but then obviously they do we know who they are um and the other thing it felt like that was also specific to that time that they that they weren't caught because it it wasn't like an elaborate mastermind but no absolutely not it 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 was almost an accident that they didn't get caught Right, because they stole the thousand pounds of dynamite. He didn't go into a store and buy it. He just he ripped it off. And they got I me, mean, but they get away with that. They're like uh, everything is close. They're taking their own cars. Like I just feel like uh, with the like a level of like surveillance, exactly. Uh, none of it could happen. Right. It just feels like this this really brief moment where you could pull something like that off. Where where like the level of surveillance isn't there but the level of technology is and there's places like tahoe with huge buildings that you could you know i don't know it just feels like it's this uh it could only happen in this one really brief moment no it's it's amazing i mean because they stole a thousand pounds of dynamite and the fbi began one of the largest investigations in the history of the agency which continued for a year (laughs) before they were alerted to the fact that someone had stolen a thousand pounds of dynamite it's amazing. Well, anyway, I, I don't want to ruin any more of this story. We should, uh, you should just go buy it. That's buy, buy it, definitely. Please buy it, buy it. That's is that a, that's a new thing for you, right? Trying to sell a story. Have you done that before? Done the all card story di- thing directly to the directly to the consumer? Yes, that is the first time I've. How's it going so far? Oh, it just it came out, <laughs> we don't have came to tell- out yesterday. <laughs> so 
you know, I'm just sitting here drumming my fingers and just waiting for the the like uh, trucks to back up to your house with just exactly. piles of cash. The the, uh, the giant check to be to be presented to me. Uh, all right, well, let's go back. Let's go back uh, in time a little bit. Our more astute listeners will have picked up on the uh, fact that you're British. I am. I am. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about where, where you got your start, how you, how you got your start doing this stuff. A long time ago. Um, I'm one of those people that, that never wanted to do anything else except be a journalist. Um, and so as soon as I left, as soon as I left college, I got a job on a, on a music magazine in London. And I kind of followed that trajectory until, until it burned out because the, the, this was the 90s which in Britain, certainly, was the kind of last golden age of magazine publishing. And I worked at one of the two biggest magazine publishing companies in Britain, uh, which was a fantastic place to work because they the place was run by people who'd come up through editorial. Uh, and they had an extremely liberal and inspired attitude to the way they went about their business, which was that they essentially handed the keys to the car to people like me at the age of, you know, like 24 or 25 and let us do pretty much anything we wanted. And what did you do? Well, so by the time I was 30, I was editing my second or third magazine. And so you could, you know, but you could you could just put things in print. You could <laughs> just go and you'd have an idea and the next week you'd be doing it. That is an incredible, uh, uh, incredible thing. I, I edited a newspaper when I was uh, way too young to be editing a newspaper, right? And that moment where, like, you <laughs> just like put up something that you think is funny on the cover of the paper, and then it's just out there in the world. It's a pretty, mm -hmm. pretty crazy moment. It uh, it is, and and then there are those other moments where you've done that, and you discover that you've done something tremendously costly to your Horribly employers <laughs> yeah <laughs> which yeah. which we did do <laughs> and i i think I, on on my watch we once had an entire print run of the magazine that i worked on at the time uh withdrawn and pulped oh that's a great time that's a that's a fun <laughs> way to spend an evening what what happened what was the thing we were running we created a parody magazine within a magazine and we were attempting to make an ad in the pages of that magazine look more realistic so we took the logo of a government body <laughs> for listeners at home adam is hanging his head in shame as he tells the story <laughs> off an advert for that government body and simply pasted it into the page of the magazine strong choice yeah um and then we printed it <laughs> then we got a letter from a lawyer <laughs> So that was an important lesson, but there was a lot of there was a lot of that. So I, I, you know, I spent I spent nine or ten years, but learning learning by doing, and doing a lot uh, from the office. I mean, you were running magazines and managing people and editing stories, right? Did you like that side of the world? I did like doing it, and 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 I kind of miss working in an office because I miss that environment. Um, but you know, this was at a time when people didn't still yet really use email. So I kind of, you know, I spent much of my working day talking to people on the telephone and, right. you know, that that world has gone. So I don't really know what working in a magazine <laughs> office is. Whenever I go to magazine offices now, I'm kind of struck by how terribly silent it's and really lonely quiet. they It's seem. really quiet. I mean, we're, we're <laughs> taping this on a Sunday in our office. It is exactly as loud as it will be 24 hours from now. Right. This is, uh, this is pretty much it. Yeah, everyone's, so everyone's got headphones and they're all, uh, and everyone's chatting each other. Right. Yeah, it's kind of creepy. Um. So yes, I, I did do I did do a lot of 
editing. But while you were working at that point, I mean, was the goal to start writing these longer stories to be freelance? I mean, you know, it, just looking through like the chronology of your history before we talked, like it, it seems like you were sort of on this one path and then something changed. It wasn't. It wasn't really like that. It what I I had always wanted to. I always really liked writing, but I'm one of those people who who kind of who's you know whose career for a long time was determined by the jobs I was offered. So, you know, certainly at that time, if you proved your your ability at writing, pretty soon, you would be you would be offered a job as an editor. So then, so then I took that job as an editor, and then I did that for a little while, and then I became quite frustrated and tired of it, and because you know I wasn't getting out and doing the stuff that I'd started doing, going out and reporting and writing things, so I quit. I'm gonna stop you there because I feel like. Um lots of people never quit. I think that that, that experience of like uh, you're a pretty good writer and uh, some more money gets thrown at you to like sit at a desk uh, and maybe, I don't know, like you have a family or kids or something and you take that job and then you and then you get kind of used to the, having a little bit more money and a little bit more security and you stick with it and you don't quit. I think that happens to a lot of people. Right. But I think I was at this point, I was still so young I didn't have any responsibilities or any commitments, so I was just like, you know what, fuck it, I don't want your job. Um, I mean, what? Because what actually happened was I was offered the the job of editor in chief of that magazine, and and in the meeting I was like, I, you know, I by that time I'd already seen too many movies, and I almost literally said to the to the guy who was who was you know one of my mentors at the time and was and taught me an awful lot. I almost literally said, fuck you and your job. I'm not interested. <laughs> In fact, I'm quitting the job I have. Um, so so then, I, then, I, then I did go freelance and I started. Then you walked out and said, what the fuck have I just done? Well, but it was, it was funny. It was like, they paid me so little money. It, was, it wasn't like I was in financial. I was putting myself in terrible financial straits because I, I was just like from, turning, turning not, down the company jet or anything. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then I'd, I'd started kind of properly... By that time, I had a, a a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do, and I wanted to write like long, deeply reported features. And I actually started um, working for American magazines. I got a I got a, an assignment from <coughs> from uh, Details in the different incarnation it was in then, and started writing for places here. And I was like, I can't I can't believe this is happening. This is fantastic. But then I got offered another job. This time to launch my own magazine, and it, so it's like you know it's the Michael Corleone thing. It's, it's <laughs> right, like trying right, to get right. out and they keep putting, and and so I said, oh, okay, oh yeah, that'll be great. I'll do that. So then I cut off this this you know sort of budding career that I had in it, and in fact was in the middle of reporting a story for I can't believe I did this either. I was in the middle of reporting a story for Details at the time, and I rang up. I eventually rang up. The, the assigning editor and I said terribly sorry I can't finish this story because I've been asked to launch a magazine I'm, I hope you understand which you know deeply regrettable fuck you and fuck your job stupid thing to do <laughs> um, but so then I and then I, I went back into to editing magazines for another couple of years um, and that was the face no that was another magazine then oh. I got the face job and then after after that was I don't know then in I guess in 1999 I left that job and th- and that time then I was like now I've finally got that out I've really got that out of my system I know next time to say no because um, 
can I ask a naive question? Yeah. Was there was there um was there a culture of doing sort of deeply reported long stories in the UK? Like was the choice do this brand of British journalism or do these long reported features for American magazines? There is a bit of that because there there wasn't that culture of that. But you could, if you wanted to do it, I mean, the attitude that that I encountered then was was really like, you know, like someone who insists on playing their own mandolin that they've built by hand in their workshop from their own original 15th century blueprints. It's like, well, sure, you can do that if you want, but, you know, you could just play this guitar that you could buy in a store. <laughs> um so I, I, so th- then I did start doing these things, you know, and, and I spent, you know, the, one of the first things I did, I spent a year reporting, and the, the the guys that I did it for, they were extremely happy with it when I finished it, but they also thought I was a little bit mental for right. doing that. It wasn't, it wasn't like it fit into some hole that they needed to fill in the magazine. It was like a special, different thing we're going to do this month. Well, no, it's just, it was no because by that time I was working. I worked the the one place where you could do that that kind of stuff, and there was a culture of it was in the the Sunday supplements for Sunday newspapers, like the equivalent of the New York Times magazine right. in England. Um, so I would I would do things like that for them. I mean, I would do sort of shorter profile pieces and other stuff, but I would also work on these other things, which are what I, I kind of really wanted to do. I read this story. It's like the first one on your uh, on your website. I went back and, and read some of your stuff. But the earliest one that you have listed yeah. is a profile of Richard Branson. Oh, yeah. So that was one of the Sunday stories I did. Um and uh, <laughs> I haven't read that in a long time. Do you remember any of it? Oh, I, re- I remember doing it. Yeah, <laughs> I remember doing it vividly. Uh, it's like I think it's like two thousand. Yes. So he's Richard Branson, but he's not like Richard Branson, right? At that at that point, yeah. He uh, was in Britain, but he wasn't kind of the global figure he has become, right? And um, basically, the story, as if, as I. <laughs> I'll try and explain it back to you, since you might not remember it. Is uh, you get wasted with Richard Branson? It's basically the story. Definitely, he likes to he likes to drink. I went to his birthday party. He has a <laughs> he has a annually he has a he has a or then back then he had a a cricket match um, on the, in the garden of his home in Oxfordshire, and he would invite you know hundred or hundred and twenty people, and he would start drinking in the morning. And he likes he then he he liked to drink and it, I ended up because he, actually this story was a provided an important lesson for me which is never to drink while working uh, because during the course of the day I didn't drink anything and then then at the end of the day very late at night and I'd spend most of the day with him then we sat down and began drinking over an, over the over a tape recorder and I got a fantastic interview out of him for hour and a half hour and a half because what happened is that we started drinking and I had a couple of glasses of champagne with him and then after about 15 minutes I went to the the bathroom and I did something I would never do now which is I put the tape recorder on pause and he got drunker and drunker I was kind of moderating my consumption of alcohol but he got drunker and drunker and more and more entertaining and told me more and more fantastic stories with more reckless details in them for some time before I realized that I had never released the pause button on the tape recorder. <laughs> and then Richard Branson was such a nice guy that he and I, he said, oh, my God, no, this is terrible. I said, what, what, what can we do about this? Can you remember what we're talking about? 
And then, so then I, then he and I turned the tape recorder on and drunkenly attempted to reconstruct the conversation we had for <laughs> the preceding hour. I, I don't think I need to tell you that doesn't work very well. It seemed like it worked okay for the story. Well, yeah, but I, I, there was loads of stuff I wasn't able to use in the story because I couldn't, I didn't have it on tape and I couldn't, neither of us could remember it. <laughs> the other kind of running theme of that story is that uh, he keeps like stealing cigarettes from you. Like he had just quit smoking and he was on the board of whatever the like parents oh, against yes. smoking is yes. in Britain. Yes. He's the head of that organization. Yeah. And uh, throughout the story, like you guys keep sneaking away and, and like uh, stealing a butt. And he's like terrified that like his kid is going to come around the corner at the wrong time exactly. and catch him. Yes, because his kids were kind of y- either young teenagers or, or kind of preteens at that point. And then it ends with this kind of wonderful moment, which is I think the very end of your your hour and a half long drunken conversation, in which he talks about like his his uh, this like terrible dream he keeps having where he loses a house. Oh yeah. A very realistic prospect. It seems yeah, to yeah. Me. The kicker of the thing was just kind of like the whole piece is about like what it's like to be kind of rich, massive celebrity Richard Branson, and it ends with him just being like, uh, here, "The worst thing about me, like the thing I don't want anyone to know, is that I, I literally have dreams where I, I lose my houses. <laughs> I misplace houses. Um, there's a period of, of your of your life where you're working in these British magazines, and after that, you're you're kind of just freelancing, right? I mean, I assume right. you're on contract a couple right. of places and stuff, but you're, you've written for maybe more publications than anyone who we've had on the show. It's like, it's like a, it's just a list, it's a serious list. Really? Okay. Well, it's been, there's a, it's a, the list now goes on longer than I'd like to admit. I, think. I don't think that's a bad thing. Why is that like, a bad thing? But, but I look at it and I'm like, somebody asked me the other day, how long have you been doing this? I was like, 25 years. Oh, no. <laughs> a while. Yeah. The answer is a while. A while. Yeah. A bit. <laughs> still still finding my way uh, and so so one one uh part of your writing is the stuff i was i was just asking you about in these these sort of profiles and right uh but you but you you've also just got these yarns the atavist is the latest one but there's there's so many sort of great really intricate crime stories in right. particular that i'd like to talk to you about um, I, I don't even know where to start exactly um inkjet counterfeiter can we talk about the inkjet counterfeiter? Sure, I'd love to. Albert. Yeah, Albert. Hold Albert. Also, for the record, like a tinkering a tinkering, tinkering guy in California so, yep. who really wanted people to know what a great tinker he was. Yep. And a, a pretty nice guy. Unlike Big John, who was a total monster. Yeah. Uh, Albert, kind of kind of nice guy. Can you give the like quick version of that story? Uh he was um he was a kind of career petty criminal who um went from check fraud to um, counterfeiting uh, U.S. currency. And he um, managed to eventually pass, as they say in the Secret Service, um, more than $7 million worth of, of counterfeit currency that he had printed on inkjet printers in his bedroom using supplies from Staples. When he started, did not know how to use a computer. He did not have a computer. I, I don't know whether he didn't know. He certainly didn't know his way around any graphic design programs or, or anything like that. No. How do you find that story? I mean, how do you find all these stories? Where, where, where are you looking? How did that? How did that one come about? Um, that one was in the newspaper. That was in. Although that was in what I now regard as a kind of a better resourced, thicker New York Times, where the the list of crazy stories in the home news, uh, sec- national news section would be. Uh, would be quite long. So it was in that kind of narrow column of stories down the right-hand side of the page where it's mm-hmm. like 
you know, 75 words from Associated Press. And so it was one of those stories about this guy, Albert Tolton, who'd been arrested for for counterfeiting $7 million in, in, in US currency um, that he, he printed at home. And I wrote him a letter, and he wrote back to me. Um, and, and so that's how I got that. Well, and also I got the cooperation of the Secret Service, which I didn't realize at the time was, was quite as rare as it is. Yeah, I wondered why they were so open with you, because it felt like it, like it would kind of inspire someone to counterfeit bills. They're pretty careful about what they tell you and what they won't tell you. They're, as it turns out, they're one of the more uh, conservative agencies in terms of allowing access to, to their staff. The whole story, Albert's whole story, kind of makes you think, like, ah, maybe I could do this. Well, that's exactly why he started, because, because his boss at the body shop he worked at showed him a counterfeit 50 and said, and, he, and Albert thought to himself, you know, I could do a lot better than that. <laughs> so what happens, okay, so you send him a letter, you send him your stuff, and uh, he's like, yeah. I've written a lot of letters to people in prison, I should say, at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, how often, are they, how often are they game to talk? Like one in ten. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't receive a reply most of the time. Well, I assume that's a no. Right, yeah. exactly. But Albert was game. He, yeah, he was eventually. I, I wrote to him and requested an interview, and the prison set up the interview and then I by that time I I I was calling him from a hotel room in Los Angeles because I had flown there so that I could try and if if he agreed to talk to me face to face and the prison would let me do it they could just go and do it um so I'd set up this what I was allowed was a 30 minute telephone interview with him and then he got on the line and the first thing he said was why should I talk to you and then I had to spend 25 minutes of my 30 minutes talking him into talking to me. <laughs> I assumed he had consented, but he hadn't. He wanted to get the measure of me on the phone. How do you go about doing that? I cannot remember. I just, I, I think I told him what my intention was with the story and that, you know, I, I wanted to, I had, the, by that time I'd had the Secret Service version of the story, uh, which is, you know, obviously a very sanitized governmental narrative. But I wanted to find out how he had ended up doing this, and where, because by that time he was in his early forties. I mean, and and he had come to this level of criminality pretty late in life. So I was curious about how he had done it. But I was also aware of the fact that someone who had done something like this was going to want people to know how clever and ingenious it was, and that and that turned out to be the case. I mean, he. You know, he, when he started to tell me his story, you know, he explained that this this ingenuity had gone back into his teens and that he had been in the middle of studying, I think, like electrical engineering or something at, at college in um, in Long Beach. And what had happened, this isn't in the story, I don't think, but what had happened is that he'd got his girlfriend pregnant. And so he had to leave college. So he was his kind of his dreams of white-collar success were derailed at this point, and it, it eventually drove him into illegal ways of making a living. Do you ever, like, follow up, you get the letter from someone in prison, you go and meet them, and they don't have that kind of, like, motivating backstory? Like, you can't... Is the story ever not there once you get that far down the line? Or are you in a place where you can just kind of make it happen? Like, is, the, is there always a story behind $7 million in counterfeiter bills? There's always a story with the crime. I mean, part of the reason it's it's 
appealing to to both report and to read crime stories is that there's always a narrative, you know, because something has always gone wrong. Because if it hadn't, you wouldn't be reading about it, you know. These guys are always in prison. Unless it's a mystery story, then these guys are always in prison. And they ended up in prison because they fucked something up or they trusted the wrong person or they, you know. And in, in, in Albert Tolton's case, even if he hadn't had this interesting background or, or background that kind of lends itself to explaining in part how he ends up this way, being this kind of, you know, thwarted, ingenious guy, there's a lot of fascinating stuff about how he got caught. Because he's like, he's like Big John in the Atavist story. He just, if he hadn't gone in with these knuckleheads, right. then he'd be still driving his Aston Martin DB7 around Glendale right now. So the story is really about how people screwed it up, not how they pulled it off. Well, he, I, yeah, because ultimately, I mean, and, and the, this is what you know, detectives will tell you, is that, that, they, you know, that they, they always get caught in the end. I mean, very rarely do criminals kind of just get away scot-free for decades and, and you know, retire to Hawaii. Right, and even if they do, they eventually get caught. Right. Usually. Usually. It seems like you like uh, you have an eye for those stories, those stories that, that are those kind of like uh, just holy shit stories. The idea that this guy could have just kind of up out of nowhere figured out how to counterfeit $7 million right. worth of bills is kind of mind-blowing. It just seems like it, it, it feels like it's out of a movie. Like It feels it, like it, yeah. shouldn't, it shouldn't be real. And it seems like those are the kinds of stories that you uh, gravitate towards. Yeah, that's true because I think because you know I was before I came in here I was kind of I was trying to look over the things that I I'd, I'd written you know over the last ten years trying to find some you know unifying theory of what I'm interested in and the the fact is that I think that what I'm really interested in is narrative you know and drama so I, th- those are the things that I'm attracted to and to a certain extent I'm I'm just looking for things where I think I would love to find out how that happened you know. That's that's like the that's the guiding principle, right? Exactly. You're just following your own curiosity, right? Talk about uh, the other story I wanted to ask you about was the uh, the gangster prince of Liberia, the, right. the Charlie Taylor story, yeah, uh, which is I think maybe different a bit from your other stories in terms of the scale of of the impact that the person had. Right. So, I, I part of what makes the counterfeiter or or Big John of these stories really cinematic, or and and. Uh, and kind of fun. They're kind of fun to talk about, and they're like right. fun to read. Is that no one, no one really gets hurt, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, because I've, I've written stories about. I mean, a long time ago, I wrote a story about a serial killer, which I was actually in the middle of reporting, and I suddenly realised how upsetting I was finding. That, that was the GQ piece. Oh no, no, not that. No, that guy, uh, the longest-serving convict in yeah, in 60, the United 65 States. years, right? Uh, yeah. No, before, a long time before that, I writ, wrote a story about the, the Green River Killer in Seattle, who was this guy who, I mean, th- this statistic is constantly being trotted out about various different people, but at the time, he was regarded as the kind of most prolific serial killer in American history. And when I was reporting that, I just the details of the story are so disturbing that, that I, I found it very difficult to work on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I, I mean, have you sort of since then kind of veered away from that kind of story? Yeah, I th- well, I, I, don't, I think subconsciously I probably have because I, I'm, I'm, I'm not curious about what goes on in the minds of those people because, you know, those people are crazy. To get back just to that Gangster Prince of Liberia story, that right. is not a story, that's not a lighthearted story. It is not a lighthearted story, no. Uh, could you just describe it quickly? Um, it is about the, 
probably oldest son of uh, Charles Taylor, the former president of Liberia, who was raised as a as a kind of lower middle class kid in in suburban Florida. And then when he was, I can't remember now, maybe 16 or 17, went to visit his father in Liberia at the point when his father was planning to overthrow the Liberian government. And then when Taylor did, in fact, overthrow the Liberian government and installed himself as its de facto dictator, uh, his son, Chucky, uh, went back to Monrovia and became the Uday Hussein of sub-Saharan Africa. It's a hell of a moniker, and it was that was certainly not a lighthearted story because he he ran a he ran basically a torture center in the jungle in in Liberia, um, was responsible for I have no idea uh, how many atrocities, but he's now he was made the um, the test case in in a, a prosecution under a law that was put on the books uh, under the Bush administration that makes U.S. citizens prosecutable for crimes of torture committed abroad. So, and he was the first one, right? And he was the first one. He was eventually, tri- after I wrote the story, he was tried and found guilty and will be in prison for the rest of his life, I think. He didn't write you back. It's funny you should say that because I never wrote to him. How come? Because I didn't think he would write back to me. But uh, but I, I, I kind of, I don't know, I, don't, I have no idea because I spent more than a year reporting that story. Yeah. And I contacted... Everybody that I could, who I mean, it's kind of it's it's sort of a write around, and the guy was sitting there in Miami the whole time I was working on it, and then somebody actually did subsequently do do another story about him, in which they corresponded with him in prison, but it wasn't I don't think any more enlightening about his personality than if he hadn't written to them. Uh, One more story I want to ask you about, and then I will let you go. I'll let you out of this (laughs) boiling hot room. You wrote a piece in the New Yorker, I think, last uh, year. Last year, yeah, uh, about window washers. Right, that Wait. was entertaining to do. Yeah, I'm sure it was, and uh, it was also like I feel like I, I keep asking you, like, how'd you come up with that story? How'd you find that story? That one seems pretty clear. It's like you just looked up someday, right? No, no, I was I was reading the paper. I read the paper, and there was a story. I mean, I'm sure you remember this. There was because this was a kind of big tabloid story. These two window washers fell off the top of a of like a 60 story building on the upper east side the brothers yeah the brothers yeah right? and one of them was killed so that was a big story but then what was a smaller story was about 6 months later another window washer was killed falling you know eight stories from somewhere in the west village and at that point they and the, the, this the second story was in the new york times and they interviewed the guy's widow and his widow said because this, this quote is in the, the finished piece, I think, where she says something to the effect of people don't realize that being married to a window washer is like being married to a policeman or a firefighter. And I was like, really? Is it really that dangerous? Christ. So at th- that point, I thought, well, m- there's something in this. Yeah. I was. I mean, that was another one of these stories where I was just surprised it hadn't been done. Well, I, to be honest, it was, it was more specifically than that. I couldn't believe The New Yorker had never done it because <laughs> it seemed like if, if you were kind of creating a template for a New Yorker story, yeah, that would be it. So I, you know, before I pitched it, I went into the archive and I discovered they'd written about a window washer precisely once in 1935. <laughs> How many times were you able to go up? Up where? Up on the top of buildings. 
I, I mean, I could have gone up as often as I wanted to. I think by the <laughs> Did end. Did you not want to go up very often? Well, it's it's fine. It's it's the the um, being on the top of a building. I do not. It does not bother me at all. Being on the top of a window washing rig, being swung out over the parapet of a building in a high wind, is not something I'd want to do very <laughs> frequently. Um, and being on the top of the Empire State Building, where there's no guardrail, uh, and the parapet came up to just above my knees on a catwalk that was probably two feet or 18 inches wide is not something I'd ever do again. You found this whole kind of, uh, this whole world of these guys who, who watch right. all almost all guys. One guy told me that there used to be a woman, uh, but she quit. <laughs> they must have treated her so well. <laughs> yes, it's it's not a macho world or anything. And, but they let you into it. I mean, they must have been so excited to have someone care. Not at all. Really? No. How many assumptions was, can I have about the story that are it wrong? It was very hard to get people to talk to me for that story because, uh, I, I mean, as I explained in the job, in the story, the job is kind of, it's a unionized, the guys that I spoke to, it was a unionized gig um, and once infamous for the brevity of its hours, I think was the term I eventually used. And part of the reason the job appeals to to the guys that do it is because there is literally nobody looking over their shoulder (laughs) and they can do what they want. Right. It's about a four-hour workday. Right. Used to be. That's what they said. Used to be a four-hour workday. Everything's changed now. Sure. And so they had had no interest in, in having somebody hang around and watch what they were doing or not doing or... You know whether they were adhering ad- adhering to the extremely stringent safety regulations of the job. You know whether they were showing up, and also you know the the building owners themselves certainly did not want me doing it. I mean, I I spent months and months trying through the union to get access to these to go out onto these rigs, and having a lot of of incidents where I was stood up at four o'clock in the morning standing outside high-rise buildings in Manhattan with a cup of coffee in my hand and, and people just wouldn't show up and I just kept being told I, I couldn't do that. It's kind of ironic that it ended up being the Hearst Tower. The reason that it happened was because in the end I stopped the routes I'd been attempting to pursue which was by going through the window cleaners themselves and going through the union and and in the end I wrote to the to the owners of the Hearst building and said, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in going out on the rig on this building because I'd already interviewed the window washers there. So I knew all about, and everybody knew that the rig on the Hearst building was the most complex at that time in Manhattan. So this was the one I really wanted to write about. Right. And the guys who washed the windows were like, absolutely not. We don't want you anywhere. You know, you, you're not allowed to come in here. I'll talk to you in the cafe down the street, but, you know, can't come in here. Um, and the Hearst people just wrote back and they said, sure, when, when, when do you want to do it? Come up and have a look. And then when I went up and had a look at it and they showed it to me because they're very proud of this, you know, yeah. Norman Well, they Foster made a building. massive investment in just the window washing. Right? right, let alone the building itself. Right. Um, so, yeah, they were very proud of the architecture of the building, of the of the systems that, that, you know, were used to maintain it. And then when I got up on the roof that first day, I said, so what I really want to be able to do <laughs> is, is go out on this thing. Um and they sort of, you know, they they consulted with one another and they said, yeah, well, that's fine. You'll just have to um, be trained to use it. So that in the end, that's what I did. How long does it take to get trained up a on it? A morning. Yeah. All right. Uh, it wasn't like uh, you were going to window washing school for... No. 
But there was a period of time where I thought that I was going to have to do that, which is like a six-month course. I think about like a, you know, super romantic reading of that story. The reason that I, w- I would think that they wouldn't want you out there is because it's like this totally protected, very, very rarefied air. You kind of get the impression that maybe they don't want anyone to know like how kind of glorious it is up there. Well, in, but in the case of those guys, that, that you're absolutely right. They really did want to, they wanted people to know what it was like to to do that job and they wanted people to see the view and they, well, they wanted me to see it and experience it and you know one of the guys um, who worked at the Empire State when I was I went up there to, to clean the windows of the, on the observation deck with him one morning and he said that his wife who worked down, down further downtown uh, used to come up and have breakfast with him there in the mornings so they had these a lot of them had these kind of quite sweet stories about yeah. their relationship with the buildings they worked in you're writing all these stories, been doing this for a long time, both these profiles and these long narrative pieces that take a lot of time. They take a lot of uh, money, a lot of these stories right. uh, to do well. Um, and you've been doing it for a while. I mean, how how are you feeling about the state of things? Do you feel like you're going to be able to keep doing this work in the way you want to for uh, a long time going forward? And I guess another question is like, I feel like it's interesting that you were thinking about what the sort of larger theme in your work is before we sat down, because I was trying to think about it too. and And there isn't one really. I mean, you're kind of all over the, all over the map. You've done a lot of really different kinds of stories, right? But the th- there are things that I prefer to write about. Okay, and so what are those? Cr- crime. I mean, like crime narrative. And those are expensive. Uh, well, they can, but they're more. T- they're expensive in the sense that they're time consuming. They're expensive for me because uh-huh. it takes, you know, you a lot of the time you've got to. You've got to wait for someone to be sent. You read about this. You read about it happening, then you've got to wait for somebody to be sentenced. Then you've got to see if they'll talk to you. Then you, you know. So you, the 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 time span of reporting them can be very long. Do you have a Do you have a bunch of them going at once? Like, do you have letters out to prisons all over the country? No. <laughs> I wish I did, uh, but I don't. I, I don't. I mean, I've got a couple of things going, but not. I don't have some huge dossier of like a dozen of these things going the whole time um and how will if that if that curiosity isn't going to wane for you how do you feel about uh your sort of ability to keep doing these in terms of where magazines are at i think that this is the, the these are the, the i mean my experience in talking to editors is that is that, that these these kind of narrative these yarns those are the stories that everyone wants because they're really hard to find they're hard to find stories where things go wrong just late enough in the process to make a really interesting story of how they got to that point. You know, because all too frequently what happens is that your criminal steps out of the front door of his house and trips over his shoelaces and is in cuffs before he gets off the floor, you know. Well, uh, this one, the Atavist one, 1,000 Pounds of Dynamite, is a uh, pretty good version of that. You, you can't You can't get much better... On the uh, getting close, <laughs> but not not quite all the way. Not quite. Uh, should go pick it up, Adam. Thank you very much for uh, taking. Thank the time. you. It's been great. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss Berman. Our intern this week, Destiny Johnson. Thanks very much to Adam Higginbotham for coming in, not only on a Sunday but sitting in this sweltering room. Uh, it was worth it. The story, it's a, uh, it's a holy shit story. What else can I say? 
A Thousand Pounds of Dynamite. Available now from the Atavist. Read it on the website. Download the apps. Get it for your Kindle. Uh, it is a yarn. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.